A fabringen, in Yiddish a term meaning a joyous gathering, but it's really so much more. It's insight, it's inspiration, it's the bottom line. Join Rabbi Levi Avton, Tuesdays at 1 p.m. for the Fabringen, only on 101.9 High FM. Hi FM, this is Rabbi Levi Afton, it's good to be here with you on this Tuesday, the day before Rosh Chodesh Av, a new month, the the month of Av, Menachem Av, where the Father comforts us, God comforts us, and Menachem Av, where we comfort our Father, and it's today, a beautiful day here in Johannesburg on the 21st of July, 2020. Yes, trying to count the blessings. At any stage in our life, it is so important that we not only focus on the challenges and build ourselves up, but also focus on the blessings. Now, if you were with me last week on the show, what we did is we spoke about, I shared stories of my grandparents. And the reason I did so is because during this time of challenge, I've been looking inward, digging deep into my story to see the strength that I come from. But that wasn't about my strength or my story. I believe each one of us has that story. If you look one generation back, two generations back, three generations back, within our DNA, we come from people who are not perfect, but people who rose to occasions and challenges much harder than ours and yet came out. And I think for our time, and I was talking to somebody who's twice my age yesterday, And he was telling me, he says, Rabbi, like, you know, I've been around this planet a bit longer than you, and I can't recall, he was born after World War II, he says, I cannot recall such craziness around the world in my lifetime. Some people might say the Cold War, etc., but there's no question that nothing as all-encompassing for seven and a half billion people has occurred. I mean, first of all, this is the first time in history that the planet has seven and a half billion people. Just a hundred years ago was less than a half. Um... But this all-encompassing story that every day offers great news, terrible news, confusing news, is an all-encompassing universe. And for our world, that thank God we grew up, most of us, and I'd imagine most of the listeners grew up in the second half of the 20th century and the first 20 years of the 21st century, for most of us, the world is very unusual for us because we've, we're not used to a world gone insane. We're used to crazy moments. I mean, many of us have lived through 9-11. Many of us lived through parts of the Cold War. Many of us um, have seen a terror attacks and pain. Many of people locally in this country have watched apartheid. There's no question that difficulty has been seen but definitely very different than what we're going through now. It's not a localized problem, it's an international problem. Some countries seem to have it under control, then they don't. And this creates tremendous anxiety. There's no question that um, mental health is one of the biggest consequences. The, the decrease of mental health around the world is one of the big consequences of what's going on now, whether there's people losing their finances, etc., or simple the fact of living in lockdown even if people's finances are relatively okay, the lockdown, the uncertainty, the fear, what happens to the world. We always thought that we knew and we could make sense of the world, and these days it seems not. 
And it's during these days, the three weeks of mourning in the Jewish calendar, we're about halfway through. And now tonight we enter the more serious stage of mourning, the nine days, concluding uh, next week, Thursday on the 9th of Av, the fast of uh, Tisha B'Av. It's during this time that we spend uh, quality time focusing on our past, mourning and grieving for what we lost um, and acknowledging the pain we were in and we are in, and at the same time hoping for better times. And therefore, for me, it's been a time of reflection, looking back into my life story and my grandparents and great-grandparents and asking myself a simple question, what, what possibly can I take from them? And interesting, in the last week or so, um, in the world of Twitter, there's been this new uh, thing going on, unfortunately, due to the rise of anti-Semitism. Originally, it started as an anti-Semitic statement, but ever since then, it's been adopted by many Jews. It's called hashtag Jewish privilege. And what the basically is like, you know, the anti-Semites trying to claim that there's such a thing, Jewish privilege, and then the Jews showing hashtag Jewish privilege. Let me show you the grave of my great-grandparents in uh, Europe. Let me show you all the persecution we've been through, documented persecution, and then talk to me about Jewish privilege. And that also awakened within me like this irony that in, in a time like this, people can sit there saying a thing of Jewish privilege in the three weeks that were mourning Jewish calamities, unlike what anyone has been through, the incredible suffering I, and the incredible pain that we've been through. And it's not there necessarily to make us feel sorry for ourselves. I don't see that, but rather for us to gain perspective, for us to be grateful for the opportunities we do have today and at the same time negate all the nonsense, all the anti-Semitism that's coming out by, by showing, by showing history. So I, I, last week I started off reading a book of my grandfather. It's called Deep in the Russian Night. A few of the listeners reached out. I don't know if it could be bought locally. I bought it locally a few years ago in the Kolo Bookshop. I'm not sure if they have any more editions. And my grandfather and grandmother who lived in the former Soviet Union, and last week I described them going through the Soviet persecution. And the irony that after going through 20, 25 years of Soviet persecution, a lot of this family then had to confront the Nazis in the early 40s and were massacred by the Nazis. So for 20 years, they were being chased for being religious under the communist regime, and then they're being killed by the Nazis simply for being Jewish. Hashtag Jewish privilege. And the fact that they walked out of this and they still believed, and they went out with an incredible confidence because for me, the biggest lesson of that, of my ancestors is not the fact that they went through challenges, but that they went through challenges and they still believed not only in God, but in humanity. Each of my grandparents who suffered tremendously, both in, from the communists, Stalin, and from Hitler and the Nazis, in another way of paraphrasing it, they suffered from the extreme right, which was fascism and Nazism, and they suffered from the extreme left, which was communism. Um, the Bolsheviks, and unfortunately we see the repeat today how extreme politics, both on the right and the left, they end up meeting. Um, they didn't give up on humankind, and each of my grandparents had more than a dozen children. And that's a conversation for another time, big families, small families, but for me the biggest statement was 
not the fact that they decided to have a large family, but that they believed in the life so much, even after seeing the darkest side of life. They literally witnessed the two darkest ideologies of the 20th century, fascism and communism. And they witnessed its consequences, and they lost, all my grandparents lost loved ones from both ideologies. I've lost dozens and dozens of relatives, great uncles, my mother's first cousins, my first cousin once removed, great aunts, great grandparents, both from the Nazis and from the communists. And at the same time, they walked out believing in life. What, what scares me the most about this time is not necessarily the pain people are going through now. Obviously that. So, I mean, yes, that, but more so the long-term effects it's going to have on us. Is this going to cause us to be more scared people, paranoid people waiting for the next shoe to drop? When we walk out of this, are we going to walk out stronger or are we going to walk out with some wisdom? That's really the question I, I, I challenge myself each and every single Day is will we walk out as stronger people or will we walk out as broken people? Because if we walk out broken, I believe that we really um, lost not only the not only money and social community in this time, but we lost our faith in the future, and that is one thing that. I think is extremely dangerous. We can never lose our faith in the future. So this is 101.9 High FM. My name is Rabbi levi Atson, And as I said earlier, um, during this time, focusing on stories of the past, focusing on my grandparents, what they've been through, I'm going to share a little more of the story that I started last week. So to give uh, just a short context, my mother's parents, my mother's father was born in the earliest, the, the early part of the 20th century in the Ukraine. And at a relatively young age, the communist ideology takes over and it becomes pretty much illegal to become religious. And he describes the pain he went through throughout the 20s, throughout the 30s. Finally, in the 30s, he gets married, but and he has children. But life is extremely, extremely scary. And he writes the following. He says, in 1937, Stalin's purges began led by the arch-murderer Yezov, the GPU, which is the forerunner of the KGB, was accelerated for greater effectiveness in spying and terrorizing people. And they literally took everybody and blamed them terrorists, enemies of the people, Trotskyites. Trotsky was originally a colleague um, and worked under Lenin, but because he was a threat to Stalin, so... If you were a Trotskyite, you were absolutely evil, so much so that Stalin chased down Trotsky in Mexico and got him killed in the 40s. Zionists, counter-revolutionary spies, and even the Jews who in the, third, in the 20s joined the Communist Party to take out Judaism, the Efsektia, they themselves were now put at the firing squad because Stalin didn't trust them. Unfortunately, you try to flatter somebody and by the end you fall into their hands. And my grandfather describes, he says, we went through each day hungry, thirsty, racked by fear of what the next day would bring. At night, we slept alert for the knock on the door. Every day which we survived was a miracle. We were even afraid to walk in the street. This is the, ninth, the late 1930s in the former Soviet Union, even before the Holocaust. One day, I was traveling home with a bus. 
During the ride, a middle-aged man with a red star of distinction did not take his eyes off me. When I left the bus, he followed and confronted me. Do you believe in God? Yes, I answered. Fascist, he shrieked. In your prayers, you say you give salvation to kings. Do you want a czar in Russia again? Eventually, I really, he's screaming and people are congregating. I said, why did you start up with me? What, did I, what do you want from me? And I ran away. Thank God he didn't, shoot, he didn't chase me. I got used to people deriding me in the street. One night, while sitting at the station waiting for a bus, a gang of Jewish youth fell upon me, pulled my beard, leaving me a souvenir of painful wounds. Thank God the bus arrived and I was able to escape. My grandfather describes what life looked like. Um, and I, I specifically focus on this part of the story now because it's an extreme case of what we're living in lockdown. But this is lockdown in the late 1930s for very different reasons. Life lacked all joy. Shabbos meant being imprisoned in the house. At work, keeping Shabbos became a terrifying ordeal. What excuse can I give my employers if they found that I don't work on Shabbos? Should I admit it? What if they inform on me to the government? The shuls were empty. Nobody who even showed up to the shul dared to start a conversation. We went to shul to Davin. We always knew there were spies there. In a way, talking to another worshiper wouldn't matter since they knew the business of everyone who attended anyway. I remember coming to shul once and seeing the great, the son of the great Rabbi Tversky and an old friend of my family. He sat a couple of benches away from me, opposite me. I snatched a few minutes of conversation with him by lowering my head and pretending to read the Siddur. All this just for a few words. This is social distancing in the former Soviet Union. The day we dreaded arrived. In February 1938, my wife's brother Shalom had been arrested in Berdichev. The next month, another brother of my, of my grandmother, of my grandfather's wife, uh, Avram, was also arrested, Shalom and then Avram. And the next day at work, I hear two workers talking. They say, do you hear what happened last night? They rounded up the rabbis of Odessa and took them to the KGB. Why? Because they're counter-revolutionaries, blah, 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 blah. Those workers did not know that these people were my brothers-in-law. I, I didn't speak up because I knew I would put myself in danger. And now my grandfather describes, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this description because I think it's extremely powerful. My grandfather um, describes his wife, my grandmother's brother, who was arrested and shot by the communists. This guy's name was Rabbi Avraham. Avraham Friedman was a wise and beloved as my father-in-law. He maintained an open house, spoke beautifully, had a handsome royal bearing. He married a daughter of a merchant because he just wanted to be grounded, didn't look for all the fancy shidduch uh, options, and had six children and never sent them to Soviet schools. For him, sending a kid to Soviet school was evil because the kids would become um, non-believers. Interesting, later on, after the Soviets were kind of successful of pretty much taking out all forms of religion and faith out of the community, so they didn't even talk about God anymore in the schools, and that was in the 50s and 60s. So then my grandfather felt he could send his kids to school at the risk of otherwise being then taken away because they wouldn't really be talk spoken about God, they would just be learning subjects. But in the 30s and 20s, after communism just began, a big part of the subject was anti-God um, indoctrination. And my great-grandparents and my great-uncles decided that they're not going to allow their kids to go to school. So these six children knew that they were different. They walked around with sideburns. They walked around with yarmulkes. Walked around with tzitzis. 
they never missed a minion. And this is in 1930s communist Russia. People would throw stones at them. One child threw a stone at the oldest boy, Arale, and blood gushed from the wound. We passed a group of girls in the street. One of them spat in his face. All of them suffered abuse just for being religious. Even after their father was seized, they didn't change. They continued davening every single day. And they continued learning. The night Avraham was arrested, eight other religious communal figures in Odessa disappeared. Um, the Chazin, the Gabai. Officially, they've been given lengthy sentences in Siberia, but in fact, the authorities had decided to stand them in front of a firing squad. Just for being religious. And again, these six boys, two years later, are all killed by the Nazis. Five of the six, one of them survived. All these boys, after suffering for 20 years in communism and having their father shot for being religious, they then get killed for being Jewish. Hashtag Jewish privilege. My grandfather describes that after both his brothers-in-law were arrested and unfortunately both killed, even rabbis started rebuking my grandfather and his family, saying, why are you so stubborn? Send your kids to the communist schools. Why do you have to make sure your kids are religious? Be religious yourself. People just criticized from every side. My grandfather says, after my brother-in-law's disappeared, brothers-in-law disappeared, the entire family suffered repercussions, including myself. I remember returning home once to hear two neighbors talking. Is he still walking around free? When will they finally take him to prison? They were talking about me. Another brother-in-law of my father, another brother of my grandmother, lived in Kiev. And he was also persecuted for being religious. His name was Rabbi Yaakov Friedman. He did whatever he could. He ran away. He fled to the Georgian Republic, wandered for a year. Finally, he came back in 1941. And he said, I just can't. If they take me, they take me. I can't bear it any longer. One after another family members were taken. All the rabbis were arrested as spies because in the Soviet democracy, in quotes, a person cannot be arrested for being a rabbi. They arrested various Hasidic Jews, Chabad and Breslov specifically, in spite of the fact that only a few brave individuals were involved in even teaching Torah, but they just arrested. In the late 1930s, the, the year 1938 in Hebrew was the year Tafresh Sadek Ches, which spells out the word Tirzach, murder. And unfortunately, the Jews felt that year that there was an incredible amount of murder. And again, this is even before World War II. And I've said this before, but as a family that suffered from the communists and from the the fascists, from the Nazis, um, there's a bit of a hurt that 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 part of our history is not remembered. We, We talk about the Holocaust a lot. And, of course, it deserves all the attention. Um, Six million Jews died, but hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Jews, died in the 20, 30 years before that, just from the communist regime. And even before the communists, during the czars, the pogroms, the famous Kishinev pogrom in 1905, the Holocaust was a culmination of a tremendous amount of tragedy and was, truth, unique in history. At the same time, it wasn't the only tragedy that we suffered in the 20th century. Why am I sharing this story? Well, I'm sharing the story is because it's, again, so important to have context. Important to know where we come from. 
and to know that we've been through so much and we'll, we will survive this and to keep our faith strong. And that's what I focus on the three weeks as well, the three weeks of mourning that we find ourselves in, to focus and remember. I was reading yesterday the history of the destruction of the Second Temple. According to some estimates, over a million people, a million Jews were killed at the destruction of the Temple. Just to understand, the entire Jewish community at that time wasn't much more than that. It was a huge amount of the Jewish people. That's the second destruction. And the first one was hundreds of thousands of Jews as well. And a few years after the destruction of the Temple, again, there was a massive massacre because the Jewish people tried to rebel against the Romans under the leader of a general named Bar Kochva. And again, hundreds of thousands of them were massacred um, in the city of Beitar. It's not the Beitar of today, but the Beitar of old. And yet despite all that, in many ways, Judaism has flourished post-second destruction in ways it never flourished before. And Judaism flourishes post-Holocaust and post-communism in ways it never flourished before. That doesn't justify the pain, heaven forbid. But it does show us and remind us that we can find meaning and light even in the darkest moments. And for me, that's the real message I want to share with each and every one of you and myself during this time. We don't know how long this is going to last. We pray that it ends soon. We don't know if we're going to be in Shul, Yom Kippur, or Shoshana. It's a lot of unknowns. But what we do know is we'll come out of this, and we'll come out of it stronger, as long as we allow it to. As long as we don't allow this thing to break us, but rather to make our resolve greater, to come out of this stronger, healthier, with more faith, this terrible tragedy we're living through can become the impetus of incredible growth, both individually and collectively. This is 101.9 High FM. My name is Robbie levy and you're listening to the Fabringen on 101.9 High FM. This is the Fabringen with Rabbi levy Avson on 101.9 High FM. I can tell you the story of my grandfather in the story, the chapter called Service in the Army. Again, my grandfather was living in Odessa in the Ukraine. A year after my wedding, shortly after my daughter, Devora, my, my aunt, she's still, thank God, alive, has a beautiful family of 17 children all around the world. Her name is Devora Greenberg. She lives in Bnei Brak, Israel. A year after she was born, I was ordered to go into Army Reserves. On Sunday, July 1st, 1938, I, re- I arrived at the Russian training camp. We, the so- soldiers, spent the morning doing exercises, then returned to the base for lunch. I spent the lunch break walking around from room to room. I didn't want to eat the food because it wasn't kosher. Suddenly I hear a shout. Chazan, that's my grandfather's surname. Where are you going? Why aren't you eating? I am eating. Where? I mean, I already ate. His lip curled. You didn't eat. Now you'll come with me and we'll eat together. We were both served non-kosher meat. He sat opposite me. Took a spoonful I began eat, and began eating. Take your spoon, he ordered. I sat silent, not knowing what to do. I prayed, Hashem save me. Come on, he barked. Eat, eat. Are you trying to get out of the army? You'll get the punishment you deserve. He couldn't even think that my grandfather wasn't eating it out of a kosher. Who was religious in 1938 in Russia? I decided that come what may, I would not eat. I don't feel well. I have a stomach ache. You're not sick, the guy screams. Eat. I was silent. All right, what hurts you? My stomach, I said. Well, we'll check you out. 
If you're healthy, I'll bring you immediately to court and you know what that means. Fine, I said, inwardly terrified. He finished eating and wrote me an application to the hospital with a closed letter. He glared at me as I left. Bring me an answer. The hospital received patients in the late afternoon. The entire afternoon, I did nothing but run and drink gallons of water. When I entered the hospital, my heart was pounding. A Jewish doctor checked me and asked me what's an alarm. What's wrong? Where do you live? I answered him and he gave me a closed note. When I went back to the army, I found that it said I was unhealthy and unfit for service. I got sent home. But that was only the beginning of my encounters with the army. When Germany invaded Russia in June 1941, Stalin commanded all eligible men to register for the draft on penalty of death. My brother-in-law, Rabbi Yaakov Friedman, and I registered, and we were drafted on July 6, 1941. Most men who reported to the draft were dispatched to their battalion after a day. But I was held at Army headquarters in Odessa for two weeks. During that time, a number of officers had been pressuring me to shave off my beard. But no, I would not consider it. Then one day, I was ordered to appear at the office. Again, for those of you who are tuning in now, I'm sharing my grandfather's story during World War II. Two burly Russian officers forced me into a seat, held my hands down, while a third sloppily cut off most of my beard with a scissors. Then they let me go. If they thought I would even out the scratchy edges afterwards, they were mistaken. <sighs> On Saturday night, July 26, we left from Odessa to the Black Sea in three big ships. The Gruzia, with 7,000 soldiers, the Vodoshilov, with 6,000, and the Lenin, with 3,000. On our way, we suddenly heard a loud noise. The Lenin, with 3,000 soldiers, had been sunk, and only 250 soldiers survived. Yaakov and I traveled on the Gruzia. We landed in Mariupol on the Sea of Azov. There were only two or three religious Jews on the ship, and we davened among 7,000 soldiers wearing our tefillin. Nobody bothered us. In Mariupol, we had to camp under the open sky, During the next few weeks, we were moved from camp to camp in preparation for the front. At this time, I decided, I tried to think of ways to get out of the army duty. Since I was drafted, I had eaten the barest minimum of bread and water, not touching any of the meat, hoping that my thin, weak appearance would exempt me. I did not understand why I should be separated from my family, be forced to live on a starvation diet, only to face almost certain death at the front. All of this for a homeland that was oppressing me. The menace I faced was that I might be forced to eat meat in order to stay alive and then only to die at the front with a mouth defiled by non-kosher food, my grandfather's words. For the same reason, I wore a big tzitzis, because if I was to fall at the front, then let me at least be laid to earth with kosher tzitzis. I knew that Krasnostav was already in the hands, and that's where my grandfather was born, of the Nazis being close to the border. I did not yet realize, however, how extensive their mass murder for, plan for Jews was. Our memory from Germans from the First World War was of saviors from pogroms. This time around, however, with three months after the Nazi entry in Ukraine, the Krasnostav Jews, which included my grandfather's parents and siblings, had already been murdered in mass, in mass graves. A few weeks before Rosh Hashanah, this time of the year, our platoon was moved to another camp. Our commander told us that he had to go and would return in a few hours. In the meantime, we walked around the town. As I passed the street, 
I notice a health clinic. Entering, I ask to be checked by the doctor of internal medicine, a woman about 30 years old who looked Jewish and whose name also was Jewish. What's your problem, she asked. I have pains in the heart. She took her stereoscope, stethoscope and examined me. I don't find you being out of order, but if I'm healthy, why am I so thin? Maybe, she says, the problems with your lungs. So then I say, when I was a child, I had a problem with my lungs. She says, what do you want to be achieved? You want to be cured or you want to be exempt from the army? I, I didn't want to admit, so I said, I just want to get lighter duties. And that's the case. I'll send you for a lung examination in the opposite building. The next doctor, a woman in her 40s, orders, take off your shirt. I remove my shirt together with my tzitzit. I did this in a manner attempting to hide my tzitzit so that the Gentile lady would not ask questions. But she wasn't Gentile. What's that, the doctor said. I wear this for added warmth. No, you don't. That's tzitzit. She was Jewish. Yes, you're right, I said. That's what it is. She checks me and says, your breathing is perfectly fine. I can't find anything wrong with you. But my heart bothers me. Enough, she snapped. I was about to go when she told me to wait because she wanted to do an x-ray. She and another woman took the x-ray and then checked the results carefully. I heard them whispering, he's in perfect shape. I started to go, but she told me, wait a minute. My mouth went dry. This doctor understood I was looking for excuse to get out of army duty. Maybe she would inform on me on the commander, to the commander. She wrote a note and gave it out to me, gave it to me. I walked out disappointed and worried. I sat down on a wooden platform in front of shops, peering at the note. Unaware to me, a non-Jew was reading over my shoulder. He calls out in wonder and says, you're sick? He had spotted the word TB, tuberculosis. Yes, and that Jewish doctor, whose name I'll never know, saved my grandfather's life. The next day, all the draftees had to line up. The commander calls out, whoever's unhealthy, raise your hand. I raised my hand as the tens of others. We were brought to a new camp. You're all draft invaders, he shouted at us. Liar, deserter. Anyone who lacked conclusive proof of a sickness was put on one side. When my turn came, I showed him the note that the doctor had given me. He looked at me and sent me to the doctor in command of the camp. He arranged for a young army doctor with extra equipment to examine me. This doctor pronounced me completely healthy. I had to deliver the results of the examination to the doctor of the camp. I decided to wait a few days. Perhaps the commanding doctor would forget the details of my case and to which x-ray doctor and to which x-ray doctor he had sent me. Meanwhile, I went back to the health clinic in town. Kami doctor, I said to her, please do me a favor and give me another note. My commander took away the note you gave me. This woman, pious Jewish woman, gave my grandfather another note that he has TB. After a few days, I went to see the doctor of the camp. Before knocking on his door, I ate a sharp onion and smoked a few strong cigarettes. I felt nauseous and looked ashen. Just as I entered his room, I began to vomit. What's the matter, the doctor says with concern. I'm sick and I cannot digest my food. I showed him the note from the doctor of the TB unit. As I had hoped, he forgot that he had sent me to the army doctor. He sent me to a medical board who heard the details of my case and granted me a month's vacation. The papers confirming the vacation were not given to me, but I was told they would be sent straight to my commanding officer. This made me uneasy since every day troops were being sent to the front and soon it would be my platoon's turn. Every day I went to the office to inquire if the papers had come, but the answer was always no. Could you imagine that anxiety? The day arrived when my troops were to be sent to the front. We lined up and a new officer 
took command. It was getting dark when we began to march. On the way, we met a few captains who came from the depot. They told us to go back because the electricity could not be used after dark, and they wouldn't be able to distribute the clothes. We returned to our base. Thank God to my grandfather. Thank God, my grandfather says. The next morning, we were lined up again to begin the march. In the last few minutes, I decided to try again and see if the office had received confirmation of my month's vacation. They did. I ran to the, uh, and thank God I arrived that morning. I showed it to the commander, and they look at it, and they say, okay, you have, you have a month's vacation, let him rest. He says, when I told him I have TB, the commander says, don't worry, you'll get your month's vacation. If you're still feeling bad, you can ask for an extension until you're healthy. What a turnaround. A week before, I had spoken to my brother-in-law who was drafted with me, and we were talking about how to survive Rosh Hashanah. Should we try to hear the shofar in town? How would we do it? Now I had a month's vacation. When I left, Yaakov wept bitterly, and I also wept leaving him. It was the last time I saw my brother-in-law. Shortly afterwards, he was killed at the front. Hashtag Jewish privilege. This is 101.9 Chai FM. My name is Rabbi Levi Atzin here on the Fabringen every Tuesday from 1 to 2. This is the Fabringen with Rabbi Levi Avtson on 101.9 High FM. Hi, this is Rabbi Levi Avtson. We have a few minutes left on the show. I'm going to just share what happens to my grandfather after he manages to finally get out of the army, thanks to the kindness of a, a, a Jewish doctor who wrote that he had TB and he managed to get out of the Russian army. And... He doesn't know where to go. He can't go back to Odessa, where he lived before, because it's been taken by the Germans. I didn't know where to go. Finally, I decided to go to Uzbekistan, which is in the far east, and many people were going, a Soviet republic north of Afghanistan. Regular passenger trains were all appropriated for army use, so the congestion and human conditions of the ride didn't bother me as much as traveling to a strange destination far from the people I loved. The train arrives in Tashkent, the capital of Uzbekistan. In the central station, I met a Jew of Odessa who gave me the news that made my heart sore. My family had left Odessa for Uzbekistan, although he did not know their whereabouts. I could go to the evacuation unit. I go and I see the big lines and I just, my heart drops. The, the, I, I struggle to find bread. I struggle to find a place to stay. I have housing. I decided to try another city that had drawn thousands of refugees, Samarkand, Uzbekistan. And over there I find my brother-in-law. He also did not know where my father, my family was. After further searches, I hear that my wife was in Jizak. It seems that when the Germans arrived near Odessa, the Jews were in a dilemma. They did not know whether to remain or not. Most Jews, hundreds of thousands, remained. My brother-in-law, who was exempt from the army, was terrified by the Germans' heavy bombardment of Odessa and decided to escape. He took along my great-grandmother and my grandmother and two children. And then I found her, my grandfather says. I found my wife. But living under what conditions? Lacking medicine and living in an unhealthy lean-to, my son had succumbed to measles with complications and died. That's my uncle. It was a crushing blow. And I was overcome with a terrible guilt and sadness. The news that I had a new daughter, Chaya Sarah, my aunt who now lives in Kfar Chabad, who was three weeks old, did little to ease the pain. My grandfather comes back from the war to discover that many of his relatives had died. 
and that his own son had died from measles and complications somewhere in Uzbekistan. Unfortunately, we don't know where the grave is of my uncle, a young little boy who died um, in the middle of World War II in Uzbekistan. And again, I don't share the stories only to focus on the pain, although this is a time of the year that we do. But to remember, these are the people, real people, who raised me. And look what they went through. And the truth is, I believe each of my listeners, if they go back in their story, they'll find very, very powerful stories of courage and strength. We will overcome this. We will be okay. As tonight is Rosh Chodesh, the beginning of a new month, I want to wish you and yours Chodesh Tov, good month. Tonight is the yard site. It's the night we commemorate the, the day of passing of the great Aaron, the brother of Moshe, a man of peace. May we merit peace in our time, a, a united humanity, a united conversation, a united health. And may we merit to see better days in our time with the coming of the Mashiach speedily. Amen. Have a great day. Aqadish Tov.